0: For those of you that might be guests of ours here uh, and you're here for the very first time, uh, this precious woman that's going to come up has been, along with her husband, my pastor, the greatest spiritual influence in my life. And they still are. And we're so grateful that we can often partner with them and they can come and minister to us and uh, just be a great blessing to us. So put your hands together and welcome Maria as she comes. <laughs>
1: Let me just say this, I know most of you don't know this, but we were in a hotel and the uh, waitress and some other people thought that Pastor Paniagua, do you call him Pastor Paniagua, we call him Pastor, or Pastor Carlos was uh, a movie star from the days of our lives. (laughs) So I think that deserves a little more appreciation. That's right, so if he gets up and preaches a sermon and says, this is the days of our lives, (laughs) I think he's gonna do a whole series, All My Children, Guiding Light, As the World Turns. But I am honored to be here, and um, I love Belmont. This is my home away from home, And um, these are my dearest friends uh, in the whole world. We have been through thick and thin together. And I say this all the time, I was so angry at them when they came here and I was angry at you that you wanted them to stay because we were really hoping for a vote of no confidence and you would send us back to them, but they're so awesome that, and and I have to say, Pastor Joey, yes, let's give them, And Pastor Joey, you are and and Cicely, like outstanding, just absolutely amazing. Pastor Tom and 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 Libby, amazing, and, and all the leaders here. I really my my assistant Penny during the worship, she said, Maria, this is such a precious. Church, You feel the presence of the Lord, and that's all we want. And I am here today to tell you a story. Many of you have already heard it just this weekend. Oh, my goodness, what an amazing event to see 2,500 young people, and most of them responded to the altar call. You have no idea of the investment that's being made in these lives. These are our now. They're our present, and they're our future future and God wants to use them. They're anointed, they're appointed and I believe that one day they will hold a mic or they will be at a kitchen table and they will tell somebody the story of the goodness of the Lord in their life. Those stories never ever get old. So I want to take you on a journey today. I not only want to speak about my past, but I want to speak about my life in relationship to once I became a Christian because it is a process. And oftentimes we think that when we become a Christian that all of our issues disappear. But unfortunately, our past just spills over into our present and it wreaks havoc on our future. And there are times in our life where we feel paralyzed. So allow me to start from the beginning. My father owned a nightclub in Greenwich Village, Manhattan, and my mother was a nightclub singer. And after about 12 years of being married, they desperately wanted to have a baby. And at 29 years old, my mom becomes pregnant. And they are ecstatic, they are so excited. But from the beginning of the pregnancy, my mom starts to suffer from these terrible headaches. Now this is 1950, there's no MRIs, there's no CAT scans. So the doctors say, well, don't worry about it. By the first trimester, these headaches Will dissipate, they will go away, but the headaches got worse and worse. And by the time my father would come home from the nightclub, he would find my mother with a towel wrapped around her head and she would be banging her head against the wall because the pain was so excruciating. They rush her to a hospital and they discover that my mom has an inoperable brain tumor. And she goes into a coma and the doctor decides to open my mother up and take out a two and a half pound baby girl. What are the odds in 1950? There was not the technology, there was not the medical awareness for a two and a half pound baby to survive, but God, but God, but God, obviously had a plan. The, my, they put me in the New York Foundling Hospital where they put orphans. I have no name on my birth certificate. My name is Baby. So I oftentimes say, if you say, hey, Baby, I'm like, well, that's my name. And I was very, very sickly. I had severe case of chicken pox and staph infection and all these sorts of things that you contract being in a hospital. And I guess when they went over to the incubator, I was still alive day after day. So at eight months old, a nurse decides to name me Maria. My father takes me home. This is 1950. No such term as single-parent households. Everybody had a mom and a dad, and everybody looked happy, at least on the outside but my father's a single parent. What in the world is this man going to do with a, a baby girl? The day my mother died, my father basically died. He basically checked out. He lost the love of his life. He would. His best friend was a glass of scotch. He would look out that apartment window in Manhattan and he would cry for my mother. So what in the world is he going to do with me? He tried nannies. He tried babysitters. And finally, my father decides he's going to put me in this religious boarding school. He feels in this place my needs are going to be met. You have to understand, I had no women in my life except maybe the babysitters that never seemed to work out. So I had no 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 grandmother, or no grandfather. I had nobody. And and my father thinks, well, in this place, I'm going to bond with women. I'm going to have a woman's touch. Uh, Somebody's going to hold me at two and a half years old and somebody's going to teach me my, my one, two, threes and someone's going to teach me about God and someone's going to have the wherewithal to give me three square meals a day. And I remember because, you know, we have childhood memories that are very vivid in our minds. And even though I was two and a half years old, I remember my father putting me in this big gray car. It was a Chrysler. And to me, it seemed like it was a battle, a battleship. It was, it was huge, and it was plain, and it wasn't sparkly like the other cars on the road. And, and, and we see, it seemed like we drove for hours and hours and hours, and all of a sudden, he pulls up to this humongous gravel driveway. And I remember hearing the crackling of the gravel underneath the tires of that big, giant car. And all of a sudden, they stop in the middle of these big convent doors. They seem so vast to me and so cold. My father takes me out of the car, and he—I'm I'm a little baby. I'm a toddler. I'm two and a half, and he takes me out, and... And then he takes my little suitcase out and he looks me in the eye and he says, Maria, I'll come and see you when I can. I remember those words because he came very few and far between and the doors open and everything my father thinks is going to happen, all the hopes he had didn't happen. As a matter of fact, the opposite happened. These people would wake me up in the middle of the night for no reason. They would put me in a dark stairway. I remember one time being in this little landing in the pitch black and, and just trying to feel my way around and falling down these this humongous uh, uh, layers of floor of winding stairs. And they would say to me, you better not say anything, Maria. You better not tell anybody. Because the devil's going to get you. As a matter of fact, you're left-handed. You're a child of the devil, Maria. You're a child of the devil. And they would put me in a bathtub of very hot water over and over again. Child of the devil. Child of the devil. They would beat me. They would punch me in the face. And they would pull chunks of hair out of my head. And the weekends when the little girls, because every little girl went home every single weekend. They went home in the summer. But I was there. They would give me a little glass of wine. I was three years old, four years old, five years old, six years old. Little glass of wine. And I would wake up in bed with someone that represented God. So you could imagine the distorted, view I had of God, the little girls, they would come back from being home or from the summer, they would open their little suitcase, and the, the, the rooms were, they were a dormitory, so it was a bed and a dresser and a bed and a dresser, and they would open their little suitcases, and I remember when they opened the suitcase, it smelled like love, like they were loved, I wasn't loved, they were loved. And they would take out these little cards from their mommies and daddies and they would put it on the dresser and they would look at the card and they would look at me and they would look at the card and they would look at me as if to say, you don't have a mother. But I wasn't looking at the card and I wasn't looking at the little perfumes that their colognes that their mommy and daddy gave them. I was looking at this lipstick mark. See, they had a lipstick mark on their cheek And that was the seal. That was the seal that no one was going to stick them in a tub of boiling hot water. No one was going to give them a glass of wine. No one was going to pull out chunks of hair from their head. But as bad as all of that was, the worst thing that I ever experienced was being told I didn't have a mother because God didn't think I deserved one. You don't have a mother, Maria, because God doesn't think you deserved one. And that's the sentence that shaped my life. That's the sentence that was written, etched in the DNA of my heart. You don't deserve. You are not as good as. Well, anyway, my father, if he did show up once or twice, year, he is everything, Maria. Fine, Daddy, just fine. Because I didn't want to rock the boat. You see, my father, he had that glass of scotch. He was fragile. He was crying for my mother. I thought I killed my mother. I thought I gave her a brain tumor. We didn't celebrate my birthday. My birthday was the day my mother died. My birthday was was a, a terrible thing. So everything about my life was so it was so awful. It was so weird. It was like nothing like anybody I ever knew. So my father shows up one day. I'm 10 years old. And uh, he shows up unexpected. And he finds me with black eyes. He finds hair missing. He finds me all bruised up. And now he takes me home. He kind of sort of apologizes. I don't know if he ever did anything about what happened to me. I think that's also an issue, not being defended. Because in those days, you never questioned authority. So he kind of just took me home. And and now I'm put in a co-ed school, and we're in the inner city in Manhattan, uh, Chelsea area. Now it's very elite and chic, but in those days it was not. And um, so I'm, I'm in a school with boys, and because I'm the new girl in the school, the boys like me, and because the boys like me, the girls hate me. So I am like tiny. I'm tiny now, so you could imagine me at 10 years old. And the girls in the school, they were like Philistines. They were the biggest, baddest girls you ever saw in your whole life. I mean, they were like six feet at 10 years old. Well, at least to me, that seemed like they were. They were big. They, they were already, like, developed. You know, like, they were like big girls. And I was like this pitiful little, you know, And the boys liked me, and the girls, they would chase me home every single day. And I promise you, I learned to be an Olympic runner. Honey, I would run, I would run that block and a half to my house. I would get in that apartment, I'd be like. (laughs) (laughs) And my father would be like, how's everything, Maria? And I'd be like, fine, daddy, just fine. Until one day, I didn't run fast enough. And those Philistines caught me. And they surrounded me, and they ripped my blouse. And with my left hand, I held my blouse closed. And with my right hand, I had a fight. Because they were screaming, fight, fight! You know how, you know how we do as teenagers, very nice. <laughs> They're such nice people. And thus is why Jesus Christ had to come and save us. So I don't know how to fight then. And, and I say then because, honey, I became like those Philistines and worse. So I don't know you have to close your fist. So I go like this and I go up. And as I go up, my thumb snaps back. And the pain was excruciating. But I couldn't go home and tell my father that my thumb was broken because he was too busy looking out the window crying for my mother. And I oftentimes say this because to this day, my thumb, I mean, I am going to be 69 years old. To this day, my thumb is swollen. To this day, you could see where the bone is not, you know, set right. And there are things in our life they've never been set right. They're like unresolved issues. And there's a certain movement, there's a certain pain, there's a certain song, there's a certain smell, there's a certain block that brings you back to that place of pain. But I am here to tell you that God wants to heal all of those things. Little by little. I know we think that church is a magic formula. And you know what? It is. But it's little by little. Let the magic happen little by little. Give God one the little thing he's asking you to give him. That one feeling. Just give it to him. And God will start to heal you where you don't feel broken about it anymore. As a matter of fact, you can use that brokenness... Your pain will become your pulpit. Your mess will become your message. And you got to let the devil pay dividends for all, pay him back for all that he has done to you because he is an evil. He's an evil God. He's the prince of this world. He is evil. And he's out to destroy us. Anyway, it became like those Philistines. I became tough like them. And at 10 years old, I'm going into liquor stores. And I'm buying cheap wine like Gypsy Rose and Thunderbird. 99 cent pint of wine. And I'm drinking in what we call now the meatpacking district in Manhattan. Very chic, but in those days, it was not chic. They would slaughter the animals in those days. And the blood of the animals would run down the sidewalk. And here I was, a little girl, 10 years old, 11 years old, unconscious, in the street, never knowing that there was a God that that loved me, that there was a God that cared about me, that anybody cared about me. My drugs escalated, started to smoke weed at 12, and I've done everything imaginable, from snorting coke to speed to ups, downs, tripping, angel dust, mescaline, I've even done Thorazine. But by the time I was 18 years old, and you could put those pictures, I was sticking a needle in my arm. I have overdosed on heroin three times, I've been hit by a car, I tried to commit suicide and I've been arrested, but God obviously had a plan. These pictures come from uh, our drug dealer got saved many years after we got saved. I overdosed on heroin that night. I was a mess. I was a mess. I was a mess. And. drug dealer gets saved and years later and he finds these pictures. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I found these pictures, I preserved them so that people could see what I could do in a life because if I would have had these pictures when I first got saved, I would have definitely ripped them off for shame. So I'm here to tell you that there is a God that is able to redeem from the uttermost. In this time, I was working for Bergdorf Goodman. I was doing famous people's makeup. I was a rich drug addict. And um, I always had connections to somebody that knew somebody that could get me what I wanted. I had friends in the fashion industry, got me clothes, cut my hair. I was a little makeup, you know, I was their little doll. I was their little it girl. I was always on, you know, in the latest clubs. I've been in the Daily News, the centerfold for, um, for underground clubbing, basically like the Limelight and Studio 54 and that whole jet set world. And I would do famous people's makeup. So I knew anybody who was anybody. And I was always so miserable on the inside. And all of that knowing people and all the boyfriends and all the beautiful haircuts and all of that, I would always feel so so, just void on the inside. And in this time, I find my father dead in his apartment. They literally have to drill through this apartment in Manhattan because the, 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 uh, the latch was on. And, and all I could think of was, I am going to now get his pills, get his liquor, and inherit all his money. When they open the door and there's my father lying dead, before I call 911, this is how hard I was. I was heartless. I was hard. And, and, and I'm going to get all this money and money is going to be the thing that's going to fill this void in my life. Because now money is going to to give me what Bergdorf Goodman had that I couldn't afford with my discount. Now I was going to get the latest of everything. If it was in a magazine, I was going to get it because that's the thing that's going to fill the void. Get all this money. If it was in the magazine, I bought it. I buy designer luggage. I say nowhere to go, but I had a whole set of designer luggage. I had these humongous diamond earrings. I'm telling you, they could have stopped air traffic control at the airport. I had more chains. You know who Mr. T was? How many remember Mr. T? Well, I had more chains than a rapper. Let me put it that way. They were thick. They were big. They were gold. You know, and I was living the life. So I thought. And I meet a man, Michael Durso, and I fell in love with him. He was so handsome. He was just the sweetest guy in the whole world. And I looked at him like he was an upstanding citizen because, you know, he smoked weed and, you know, he snorted coke and, you know, did those kind of things. But he wasn't shooting heroin. And he got me to stop shooting up. And after a while, we decide we're going to move in together. And, you know, we get this beautiful apartment in Brooklyn. It has a terrace. And we go to Bloomingdale's and we order all this wonderful furniture And they're gonna be delivering this furniture in about two weeks. So we decide to go on a 10-day vacation to Mexico to this beautiful paradise. I I smuggle in about $3,000 worth of Coke. I have my designer luggage. I have the bathing suit that was on the cover of Cosmopolitan. I had everything. And I have the man of my dreams. And I'm thinking to myself, this emptiness that's on the inside, it's gonna go away. It's definitely gonna go away. But the opposite happened. When I step foot in this paradise, I start to feel emptier and emptier and emptier. And, and now as the days go on, like this sense, this emptiness, it was like so loud on the inside of me. I, I felt like something was screaming on the inside of me saying, help me, help me. And I, I didn't know what it was. I, I didn't know how to control it. And my boyfriend, he's totally oblivious to what I'm going through. I mean, the shop is open. He's a happy man. (laughs) So it's fifth day. I remember this. It was the fifth day to the 10-day vacation. And all of a sudden, I, I decide to talk to God. My boyfriend goes out for a walk on the beach. And I stay in the room. And I'm looking around. And I'm seeing everything I have. And I I can't figure out why I feel this void. It's so deep. And I start to curse God out. I called him every name in the book. I shook my fist in him. I was saying, what kind of God are you? What kind of God are you? What is this thing called life? I feel like a dog chasing her tail. And as I'm in this tirade. I promise you, this small, still voice, Trump, my loud, my loud tantrum. And it wasn't an audible voice, it was an internal voice. He said the name Maria, the name that's not on my birth certificate. He knew my name. He says, Maria. He said, give me your life before it's too late. And I knew that I knew it was God. I knew it was divine. I didn't know it was Jesus. I never heard of being born again. Imagine knowing the latest hairdresser, the latest club, but i did not know that i could be born again so i hear this voice and all of a sudden for the first time i i feel like i feel like worth something and i also experienced this instant conviction of sin i cannot explain it it wasn't a condemning voice I just knew my life was wrong. I knew my string bikini, or lack thereof, was wrong. I knew my filthy mouth was wrong. I knew sleeping with my boyfriend was wrong. I I knew the drugs were wrong. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I cannot explain what happened to me, but that voice, that one still, small voice. I I wanted to give everything up for this. I don't know what this was. Now I know we were created in his image and likeness, and we all have an emptiness that only God himself could fill. No one else could ever fill that place. Nobody. There's no boy. There's no girl. There's no money. There's no job. There's no fame. There's nothing that could fill that empty void. Only God. It's, it's created for him. He's waiting to come inside and and sit in that place so that your life could be changed and now you could move in partnership with with him, and it's not a weird thing. So my boyfriend walks back in. He's gone like 15, 20 minutes, and I said, Michael, when we go back home, will you go to church with me? He says, church? Church? He says, You need to smoke a joint, Maria. He says, you, you need to get high. And I said, I, I don't need a joint. I need God in my life. And now there's five more days to this 10-day vacation. And the shop was closed. And Michael was not a happy camper, let me say. So we're leaving this place and they offer me a job. They said, Listen, why don't you stay here? You could be a hostess, you could make money, da-da-da. And I turned to my boyfriend and I said, that's the devil, he doesn't want me to go home and go to church. I don't even know how I knew that. I've said this before, I was an instant spiritual genius <laughs> right, off the, right off the bat. And my boyfriend is looking at me like I am from the Twilight Zone. So he's planning, when we go home, he's dumping me because the shop is closed <laughs> and he ain't having that. And I'm planning on dumping him because he doesn't want to find this voice. So we get home. We get home to the the beautiful L-shaped apartment with the terrace and the two mattresses on the floor. And we have a telephone. Remember those telephones? Remember those big? Remember those? (laughs) Life was very hard. And I, I have to call somebody, and I don't know who to call because all my friends are crazy people just like me. But I, I call my friend Barbara, and I go, Barbara, I got to talk to you. And she goes, No, I got got to talk to you. And we go back and forth, and she says, Hurry up. And I said, Barbara, I need God in my life. And Barbara says, Praise the Lord. I thought she took a little too much acid. I was like, Perez who? I never heard that expression ever. And she says, Maria, while you were gone on this 10-day vacation, some hippie. I say thank God for the hippies. See, let me just say this. Let me clarify, because the church people... We're busy learning the Greek and the Hebrew, and we're busy going to choir practice, but the people are outside that he died for because he didn't come for the well, he came for the sick, he came to seek and save the lost, but we're crossing over like, like the remember the Good Samaritan, and there was the priest and the Levite, and they're crossing the street because we don't want to dirty ourselves with those people. But they're the ones that he came for. And only we that have been brought out of darkness could tell them there's a God that could bring them out. So some hippie (laughs) preached the gospel to her and 30 of our friends, our crazy, drug-addicted, insane friends. And they They decide they're going to hold hands and pray for Michael and Maria in Mexico. Guess what night that was? The night that voice spoke to me all the way in Mexico. (laughs) Guys, listen. Don't ever stop praying because your prayers go where you can't go. And God is never not working. You may not see it, but God answers prayer. So she takes us to church that night, and it was an assembly of God church. Give yourselves a hand clap. Thank you, Jesus. It was a tiny church, and, you know, church was not cool then. In 1975, church, like, if you got saved, like, it was really a miracle from heaven. Because the the song leader was this, like, little old man. and He was doing this. And everybody looked like they lived on Little House of the Prairie. And, you know, and we come, and I have on these tight jeans. I think I had to put Crisco on my legs to get them on. I had black lipstick on. I had these two eyelashes in the corner of each eye, like Catwoman. You know, very attractive. I had so much eye gel on my eyelids you could have went ice skating on my eyes I at one point I had a shaved head I had five earrings four earrings I was crazy and my boyfriend the only suit he has is this black leather suit with fringes wait and yellow platform boots and he has five earrings and here we walk into the little Pentecostal assembly of God church so I am telling you people will like grabbing their pocketbooks like oh my god (laughs) right? The church is supposed to be a Holy Ghost hospital, right? The doctor never says, come back when you look better. No. (laughs) He says, come in here. I'm going to fix you. We're here to be fixed by the Lord. So anyway, I know through the whole service, my boyfriend is like, you got to be kidding me, Maria. These people are weird. Like we weren't weird. And uh, I I said, yeah, I, I know it's weird, but what's ever here, I don't know what this is, but I want this. And the pastor said, if you were to die tonight, would you know where you would spend eternity? And I knew that I knew I wasn't going to the good place. I was going to the very hot place. So I felt like someone levitated me out of my seat. And I don't even know how I got to the front. I felt like a million angels came and scrubbed all this filth off of me. And when I looked to my right, my boyfriend was kneeling next to me, sobbing and weeping. The pastor, we prayed the sinner's prayer. And we, he went and he got the anointing oil. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, my head is going to spin around a few times because I saw the exorcist. <laughs> And I figured I had a few demons in there. But he anointed us with oil, and he said these words. He says, you will be known as the foolish things to confound the wise. And no truer words were spoken. We went home that night. Now, listen, we gave God our whole life. Some people give God the part of their life that needs a little fixing up. You know, they want a little construction in that area. No, no, no. We give God our whole life. He does a whole demolition job. And he gave us back a whole life. We went home that night. We threw out all the drugs, drug paraphernalia, the music, magazines, the clothes, down the incinerator. Nobody told us we didn't have to take 16 years of discipleship to say, ooh, is that wrong? We separated the mattresses. We got married on a rainy Monday in City Hall. And when we were married 40 40 years, yes, 40 years, we got married in church. We finally did it right. And our three sons, who are pastors, married us and our eight grandchildren. You can show that picture. I'm broke. See, I have eight grandchildren, dear Lord Jesus it's the best I mean, imagine what a beginning to have that ending, but I want to um i i don't want to end with that story, so we we get saved and 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 instantly my external behaviors changed i didn't do drugs anymore, you know we were married, we loved the Lord, we read the word, but even though the external change, how I felt internally, did not change. And it wouldn't change for decades. You see that sentence, you don't deserve. That sentence shaped my life. And, and no matter what I did or what God did for me, I, I, when I put my head on the pillow at night, I could not believe that God really loved me. I didn't know that anybody else ever felt like that. You're too ashamed to even say that because in church we're singing, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. But when I put my head on the pillow at night, I always felt like God wasn't pleased with me, that he really wanted to save my husband, but not me because I was a filthy girl. I I was somebody that came from the world, and I just did too many things for God to really love me, and it had nothing to do with my life because God gave me three sons, and he put us in the ministry, and Pastor and Yvonne came with us, and we saw miracle signs and wonders happen. God started to grow our church, but I oftentimes say this, great things can happen to you. But unless they happen in you, they won't change you. They won't change you. A million guys could like you. But if you don't feel good about yourself, great things can happen to you. But unless they happen in you, they won't change you. And I always felt like I was damaged goods. You know, the definition I once read of shame is not the sense of doing something wrong. It's the sense of being something wrong. I always felt like I was the wrong kind, that I, I, like, I always, I always felt shame. I always, like, inside wanted to hide myself. If somebody said she was speaking for this or that, I'd be like, God, because I don't want them to say you, you know, you. It was always that thing. You see, knowing in your mind that Jesus loves you, as opposed to knowing in your heart. It's like living on two different planets. It's like the difference between a fr- an acquaintance or an intimate friendship. It's your heart that seals the deal. Your heart, knowing in your heart, is the game changer. It changes everything. And it's been noted that there's an 18-inch distance between the head and the heart. No matter how tall you are, short you are, you can go home and get a measuring tape, 18 inches. And I always felt there was this 18-inch divide, this humongous chasm between what I believed and what I received. But I didn't know how to express that. You see, I was a believer, but I wasn't a re. Now, in 1991, medical literature published research findings that the heart has its own brain. In other words, your heart has a mind of its own. So it could think thoughts. And oftentimes, the the brain in the head, which is your cranial brain, that's your logic, and the brain in your heart is the seat of your emotions. Oftentimes, for us, especially women, our emotions trump our logic. It sends messages to one another, the brain of the head and the brain in the heart, but those messages don't necessarily agree with one another. So think about the implications of the heart having its own brain. It, rem- it, 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 it has the ability to think apart from the head. And it remembers words like you don't deserve, you're not good enough, you're not as pretty as, you're not as handsome as, you're not as holy as. And those things, they're just etched. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his Heart, so is he. Not as a man thinketh in his head. See, we know that the, the, the mind is a battlefield, but it's only half the battle. We have to get the two brains in sync with one another. The Bible tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not with all your head. In Proverbs 3, 5, the Bible clearly differentiates between the head and the heart. Did you ever leave church on Sunday? And I know you have because this is an amazing church and your pastor is an amazing preacher. So is Pastor Joey. And you feel like they give you a word. And I'm telling you, you feel like you could scale a wall. You are able to leap tall buildings from a single bound. You take out your little Wonder Woman outfit, your little Superman outfit, and that's right. You're walking around going, I can do all things through Christ. That's right. Tell me I can. I can not so do all. That. That's right. God is for me. God's for me. God's for me. And then Wednesday comes. And then all of a sudden the exclamation point turns into a question mark. And then it's like, is, is God for me? Can, can I? Do all things through Christ. Nobody ever said, well, the pastors a preaching. <laughs> Liar. I cannot do all things through Christ. You absolutely believe that. But what happens is as that truth is working its way down into your heart, because your heart has a brain and it has memory, it, there's like little hands go up and say, that's not for you. That's for her. That's for him. It's not for you. <laughs> you don't live in that neighborhood. That's not for you. God doesn't have a plan to prosper you. And that's what happens. I, I, I used to think that God was setting me up to fail. Honestly, I used to think that he was putting me in front of people so you could see how stupid I was. And I thought that if you liked me, there was something wrong with you because I didn't like me. Maybe Pastor Jason can help me. How long do I have? Yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I got to tell you this story. This woman gets saved in our church, if I would say the name, Pastor Nivon would know. And um, she was a beautiful woman. And after about two years, she, um, you know, she stopped wearing any makeup, cutting her hair, and, and, you know, she dressed like Little House on the Prairie. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. She looked a little Amish, but nothing wrong with that, (laughs) and um, she comes, and um, she comes to church one day, and she says, I want to have a meeting with you, and she proceeds to say to me... You know, this church is good for beginners. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. She says, but I found a church that teaches the deeper things of God. The deeper things of God. So I'm visual. So I'm picturing our church as, you know, the church with training wheels. It's like a little tricycle. And she found the church. I mean, she's on the motorcycle of her spiritual life. I mean, she's going up planets and zones. So, you know, she, she, her church is probably teaching her who the Antichrist is and, you know, and who the 666 is and the four horsemen of the Acropolis. So God forbid my husband would preach about love. I would be like, can't you preach about anything deeper than Love. Even though the Bible says that's the deepest, but what does the Bible know? (laughs) So even though she left the church, she sat on the pew with me every single Sunday. And it didn't matter that we were baptizing hundreds of people, seeing marriages restored. It didn't matter because those words, they were so deep. And I think of, Who goes on the job interview with you? Who who gets in the relationship between you and your husband or your boyfriend and your girlfriend? What voice? So years pass, and we're in this restaurant after church, and Miss Deeper walks in. And Miss Deeper is looking fine all over again. And she's with this handsome guy. And as only God would have it, the waiter puts her right next to me, and um, the the young man excuses himself to go to the restroom. And she says to me, "Whatever you do, don't ever say I used to be a Christian." That's right. That lady in the third row, she went like, "That's right. I used to be a Christian." Her words affected my life as though she really mattered. How many voices affect our lives? They don't even matter anymore. I wanted to take my plate of food, honey, and gently, because I'm a Christian, slap it over her head. I wanted to say, how dare you? You see how powerful words that have been spoken to us? But God wants to change the DNA of our hearts. He wants to replace the words that have been spoken to us with the word of God, that there's a transference, that those things don't bother us any more. Look at the Israelites. We're just like them. They were slaves 435 years. For 435 years, 19 generations were told, you're nothing, you're nothing, you're the tail, you're not the head, you're nobody, we're somebody, you're nobody. And here God sees them and they're the apple of his eye and he loves them and he wants to take them out of Egypt. He wants to take them out of that bondage. He wants to take them out of that darkness. He wants to take them away from being whipped and beaten by a, an oppressor. So God says, Red Sea, if they see it, no problem. I'll turn it into a road. No, no water, no, no water, no problem. I'll get water from a rock, no food, no problem. I'll deliver manna to your door. Too hot, no problem. I'll be a cloud by day, too cold, no problem. I'll be a pillar by night, but no matter what God did for them, every time they ran into another obstacle, they would say, why has the Lord brought me here? Because you see, they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. See, it's such good news that we really can't believe it. And that's us. God saves us. Then he does something for us. And in this world, you will have trouble. You, you come against the trouble and all of a sudden you're saying, that's it. That's the real thing. Because God brought me here to really deal with me, to really let me down. I used to never be able to have a Bible study alone in my house and, and pray. Never. I would try. But then I would think, well, what if he doesn't show up? My father never showed up, so I'd rather work for him. I'd rather do things for him instead of allow him to love me and minister to me. You think about the Israelites. They send, they send these 12 spies into the land and And they're carrying around the fruit that God said was going to be there. was gigantic. It took two men to carry the fruit. But see, along with this fruit was this gigantic sense of fruitlessness. Their past was present with them. Even though they're in the new land, the past, it's there. And what they knew to be true in their head, and what they saw with their own eyes couldn't stand up to what they believed in their heart. And you know what, they were never chased. It wasn't the external giants, it was the internal giant. It was that giant of unbelief, that giant of not being able to trust the Lord you see, the walk to the promised land, this 500-mile journey, it's not horizontal. It's vertical. If you conquer this, if you allow God's Word to change this, <laughs> there's no telling where you're going to go. I had a life-changing experience In the book of Ephesians, it says, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. He says, because once those eyes of your heart are opened, then you'll know. Then you will know the hope to which you were called. You will know the same power that resides in Christ lives in you. You got his blood. You got his DNA. You got his mind. Then you'll know, but the eyes of your heart have to be opened. I had this eye-opening experience. I was asked to be the speaker for the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It was the first conference they were doing that was outside of the church. I don't even think they've ever did a woman's conference before, and it was such an honor for me to to be able to be asked, you know, and to do it. But of course, I'm so insecure. I pray, God, give me a Deep word show me you the 666 God is I got to go and impress these people but of course God doesn't answer those prayers and weeks and weeks and weeks are passing and now God isn't speaking to me and so one morning I'm making my bed and I'm fluffing up my comforter and I hear the Holy Spirit say I want you to ask them Do you believe God really loves you? Not as a people group. When you put your head on the pillow at night, do you really believe that God loves you? that you matter to God, that he knows the number of hairs on your head, that he actually has a whole plan for your life written out. Do you really believe God really loves you? I said, God, you want me to ask the women from the Brooklyn Tabernacle? I mean, like, that's baby stuff. That's fundamental. That's like so... And then he said to me, Maria... Do you believe I love you? Now listen, I'm already saved 25 years at this point. I have no idea that all my issues are wrapped up in this one foundational truth. I really did not believe that God loved me, but I didn't know that. I used to think it was my mouth, my mind, my this. Do you believe God really loves you? Close your eyes for a moment. Think about your relationship with the Lord. Do you believe he really loves you? You. Not your wife, not your husband, not your boyfriend, not your mother, not your father. Do you believe he loves you? For God so loved the world. He doesn't only love, he so loves. You can open your eyes. Well, I had a meltdown had a total meltdown. I started to sob and weep. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to open up to Mary of Bethany. And we see her the first time. She's empty-handed. She's sitting at his feet. I just want to quickly give you those. That's in Luke 10. She's empty-handed, sitting at his feet. And Martha comes out of the kitchen like a lunatic. She accuses Mary and... What does Jesus do? He defends her. Martha, Martha. Second time we see her, it's in John. This is after the resurrection at the tomb. It's John 12. It says it's six days before the Passover. And she pours only a pint on Jesus' feet. And Judas, who represents the devil, accuses her. What does Jesus do? He defends her. And then the third time we see her, it says it's two days before the Passover in Mark 14. The Bible says that she breaks the bottle. See, the apostles who represent the church accuse her, but what does Jesus do? He defends her. She breaks the bottle. Now she's anointing his head. Notice, every time she tries to get a step closer, a familiar voice accuses her. Every time the familiar voice accuses her, Jesus defends her. Jesus never said, really, Mary, really empty-handed. Really, Mary, really? Only a pint? No, no, he defended her as vehemently when she was empty-handed as when she broke the bottle. And we need to know that Jesus is our defender. He is not our accuser. There is an accuser. And you know, it's like an earworm that you keep hearing the same old song on the inside. But the only way that an earworm could be changed is to change the song in your head. We got to change the song in our head that says, You're not loved by Him. You're not good enough. You've gone too far. You don't do enough. If you really loved God, you would have read 10 chapters. If you really loved God, you would have put all your money in the offering. If you really loved God. And He showed me a choir. He said, You see the choir? He said, they're all singing the same song. They're all swaying the same way. He says, but some of them are saying, Lord, I'm singing. Do you love me now? And then there's others that are saying, because he loves me, I sing. You see, in church, we're all doing the same thing. We volunteer. We give our time. But some of us are saying, I'm volunteering, Lord. Now? Now? (laughs) Now? Is it my turn now, God? Do you love me now? And see, God wants to flip that. Because he wants you to say, because he loves me, I volunteer. Because he loves me, I serve. Because he loves me, I'm generous. We can't buy his love.
0: I want to end with
1: this story very quickly. You've all been given a Queen of Hearts card today. When I was a little girl one summer my father put me in a camp and there were all these little cabins and there were like eight little girls in the in the cabin and and my camp counselor like she loved me obviously she knew my story she knew I didn't have a mother I was probably 3 or 4 and she wanted she wanted to love me she wanted you know to to be that person that could I guess kind of hug all the pain away. But because of what happened in the boarding school, I couldn't let her love me. See, that's another thing we do. We sabotage relationships because we have deep trust issues. There's nothing worse than having a broken heart. So she puts my little cot next to her bed and... But I am an arms, length the whole camp season. Mm-mm. I I know I know what you're after. No no. Mm-mm. So at the end of the camp year, was something called uh, Queen for a Day. It was a tradition. If anyone picked the Queen of Hearts card, they would be Queen for a day, and they were going to get a cape and a crown and an ice cream sundae, and they were going to be special. They were going to be carried around and. And this camp counselor wanted me to be queen for a day. So she was basically cheating. She had all the cards, and she didn't have this one up when she was letting the other little girls pick. And then when she got to me, she kind of props the card like above the rest, and she's looking at the card, and she's looking at me, and she's looking with the card, and she's looking at me, and her eyes are saying, take. The card, Maria, take the card. And I go, I'm going to take the card. Me. I'm going to be queen for a day. I'm going to get a cape. I'm going to get a crown. I'm going to be special. Me. But in a microsecond, this other voice came and said, You can't be queen for a day. (laughs) You don't even have a mother. God doesn't even think you deserve a mother. And I picked another card. That's what we do. Pick another card. Don't want to be hurt. Well, I never remembered that story, ever. And I'm preaching one about 20 years ago in North Carolina. And all of a sudden, I remember the story, and I start to tell it. And a woman walks down the aisle. I was with your sister-in-law, Monique. She's my witness. And a woman walks to the front, and she has something in her hand. And I, I, it's not altar call time. I have no clue, like, why she's there. She's, like, messing up the whole service. And I'm kind of, like, going this way, going that way. And she just won't go away. So finally I go to her, what are you doing? you doing? And she says, well, she says, today when I was leaving to come to the conference, the Holy Spirit told me, go in my deck of cards and take out the Queen of Hearts card. She says, God, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. She says she got in her car, she went down the road, and the Holy Spirit said, I said, go back and get the Queen of Hearts card. And in front of all those people, she hands me the card that I didn't take when I was three years old, the story that I totally forgot about, but God didn't forget those stories. You see, everything you've ever been through, everything, every secret that you've never told anybody, every painful part of your past God knows. He hasn't forgotten. I believe today that the Holy Spirit is telling some of you, pick the card. Pick the card. Your royalty. Pick the card. You may be a man. He wants you to pick the card. You may be A young person he wants you to pick the card because he remembers those things he wants you to know that you didn't choose him you're not here today by accident he chose you you only love him because he first loved you that you matter to him that you have important you're important to him he says I'm never gonna leave you You're not an orphan. You don't have to cry alone. You don't have to fight your battles alone. Says, I'm never gonna leave you. I'm never gonna forsake you. Me, who started the good work in you, I'm gonna bring it to completion. I know who you are. I know your failures. I know your flaws. I know your weaknesses. But don't you know when you're at your weakness, I'm at my strongest? I love you. You're a queen of hearts, you're royalty. And if you're here today and you wanna take the card you've been given and you wanna say, God, that's me, that's me. Don't be shy, don't be too macho. We saw about 2,400 kids come to the altar Friday. He said, that's me, God. The simple truth that you're unconditionally loved by God. You don't love yourself, but God loves you. I was telling the young people that when I was young, I probably until I started to get this revelation, I could never look in the mirror. It had to be smudged because I hated myself. I hated my face. I hated everything about me. I hated my voice. Just hated it. But then the Bible tells us in Jude chapter 20, I'm sorry, verse 20, live in the love of God. Live as though you're loved unconditionally because you are. Live in the love of God. Look in the mirror and say, I'm loved. Some of us need to stop playing Bible. Open the Bible. God speaks to me. I would look down and I would see you, harlot, and I would say, yep, that's who I am, and I would close the tr- You son of perdition. Yep, that's me. Sometimes we just got to get a book of promises. And like a broken leg that needs a cast, you know our hearts need a cast. They're broken, but he's near to the broken hearted. He wants to make our broken lives whole, our broken hearts whole. So if that's you today, you would say, that's me. I want to take the card that you're having. Just stand to your feet. Just stand to your feet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't care if you're an elder. I don't care if you're a pastor. Because believe me, my church was growing. I was speaking all over. has nothing to do with anything. You're unconditionally loved by God. Unconditionally loved by him. I know there's more of you. We're going to wait a moment. He thought you were worth saving. Yep. He thought you were to die for. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's more. There's so much more. Don't, don't let this opportunity pass. It does matter to stand. It does matter to identify yourself and say, that's right, God. I'm royalty. I've been always told my whole life that I wasn't worth anything. But today I am accepting that I am unconditionally loved by you. Thank you. Thank you. This is life changing. We got to accept being accepted. Because the other shoe isn't going to drop when it comes to God. He's never going to let you down. He loves you beyond measure. Maybe the praise team could come and just sing you thought I was worth saving just those words if you're in this room and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior the Bible doesn't say you must go to Belmont Assembly but it does say you must be born again God wants to give you a brand new life, brand new life brand new start, brand new chance Anybody here, you say, that's me, just put your hand up and put it down because we're going to pray a general prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's all pray together. Father, I come in the name of Jesus and I confess I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I thank you that you thought I was worth dying for. I thank you that you're gonna wash away all of these sins. And you're gonna heal me from the inside out so that the world will know with all the bad news, there's good news. There's a God that loves unconditionally and he's never gonna leave me And he's never going to forsake me. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. And if you've stood up, I want you to come forward. Because this is an act saying, that's right. God does love me. Come on. God does love me. I am valuable. I am special. I am precious.
0: Hallelujah. Gracious Father, we just thank you. Thank you today that we could be bathed in your love, Lord. That every single one of us can know and be reminded of the incredible love that you have for each and every single one of us. Wash us afresh and in you in that love, Lord. Thank you that because of that love, Not only has our past dealt with, but our present is changed and our future is secure. Thank you for that precious love in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus. Now. We're going to do a couple of things before we end. I know it's a little bit long, but we're going to do a couple of things. This is the atmosphere. you got to turn around and hug somebody and tell them you are loved by Jesus Christ before you find your seats. And then we're going to do one more thing, very important. Just keep playing. All right, I'm going to ask you to find your seats now. Would you do that, please, quickly? Here's here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask the uh, ushers to please prepare to receive an offering for us. Pastor Durso and Maria are approaching a new direction in their life. Uh, He is uh, retiring from the church uh, at the end of this year but God has opened up a new door for him uh, to travel. And as Maria is traveling, just to be encouragement in churches, they're going to be living by faith and just trusting God to do things as only God can do. And I want to honor her and bless her. Uh, Again, she did uh, such a tremendous job at, at our convention. Young people were encouraged and their lives were transformed. And I don't know about you, but my heart was uh, just bathed afresh and in you, in love today, and the Bible teaches us, give honor to whom honor is due. So we're going to take this love offering, you can write out a check to Belmont if you want to do that, and then we're going to just bless her with the offering. Uh, and ushers, you can just begin to do that right now. Would you could do that? we don't need to pray. Just go ahead. If you want to bless Maria and her ministry. And there's one last thing while they're taking the offering that i want you to know about she has written a new book called ageless and uh it's fifteen dollars in fact she we asked asked her to go out there at the table and uh she's going to be signing books and, and all that the proceeds of the book do not go to her it goes to the church but a very specific ministry that they have uh now the name uh huh I, I I know the name now, but legacy center. There it is. It goes to the legacy center, which is their outreach to the community where they are able to uh, f- uh, feed people. They're able to clothe people, even furniture, all that kind of stuff. So all the proceeds from the book go to, to that legacy center to being a blessing in the community. So we want you to know about that. And she'll be out there at the end of the service. Lastly, I know because we're running a little bit late and there's some people from the Spanish ministry that are looking to get it set up soon. So we want you to be mindful about that. The parking lot ministry, as always, they're going to do a tremendous job to get us in and out. But please be mindful of all of that so that we can have a seamless transition. And we would appreciate that so much. I think they're just about finished. So let's just stand and get a final dismissal. Father, I thank you. I thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts and all that you're going to continue to do. Thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name. God bless you. You're dismissed.